0: Not so long ago, I ate what should have been the best meal of my life. The the lavishly decorated table in itself was a feast for the eyes. On that table, white-gloved, tuxedoed servers placed one by one ten courses each accompanied by the specially chosen wine that was paired with each course. Now, I say I should have, or it should have been the best meal of my life because this meal was served to me on the first day out of my quarantine from COVID. So you guessed it, no taste, no smell. Now, if texture counts for anything, well, there's that. but. Otherwise, it might as well have been cardboard. So I kept leaning over and whispering to Kathy, honey, how good is this really? Now, a loving wife would have lied in that moment. (laughs) A sympathetic wife, an empathetic wife, but not so. Instead, Kathy just rolled her eyes back in her head and said, hmm. Of course, Kathy's beautiful, so she did it much more elegantly than that, but you get the point. Well, I'm not going to lie to you this morning. The Lord's Supper is even better than it looks. And we could never rightly say of it, well, you're not really missing anything. There's so much about the Lord's Supper that we could miss. There's so much about the Lord's Supper that we probably would continue to miss if we continued to talk about it week after week after week. But in returning to the Lord's Supper again this morning, I'm attempting to awaken all of our senses to elicit this eye rolling mm, from each of us as we hear and see and taste and touch and smell more and more of the richness of Christ, that the Lord's table brings to our souls and as you and I discover more and more of that richness that we understand that this is just a shadow it's just a a dim comparison to the feast that the Father has waiting for you and for me John Frame, in his book Systematic Theology writes we eat only little bits of bread and drink little cups of wine, for we know that our fellowship with Christ in this life cannot begin to compare with the glory that awaits us in Him. Another, another author writes the elements of communion are hors d'oeuvres, appetizers that enhance our yearning for the feast of the future. A tiny taste of the bread, a small sip, From the cup, but a lavish feast is coming. And this coming feast should give us hope in this life right now and cause us to yearn for the one that is to come. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return once again to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let me tell you, it's going to work this morning. We've looked at this passage now for like 17 weeks, so you're welcome to turn. To Acts chapter 2 verse 42, but I'm also going to be reading from Matthew 26, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11, so here's what I suggest. We just stand together and you listen while I read to you from the word of the living God. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 2 verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And from Matthew 26, verses 27 through 29, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Luke 22, verses 14 through 18. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you. That from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you feed our souls with it. You feed us with your truth. So feed us this morning, we pray through your word, through your table, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we have been seeing now week after week after week that this brand-new church of believers in Christ were absolutely devoted to the Lord's Supper. In fact, we saw last week, Scripture tells us that the early church gathered for worship just so they could celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So, why this devotion? This indisputable fact of their devotion to the Lord's Supper has called us to delve more deeply into it, to discover why be so devoted to it. And in order that I not re preach for uh, uh, the past sermons, let me just answer that question by saying this they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. Because it is a means of grace. A way through which God lavishes his grace upon them and us. It's a pathway that leads us to Christ so that they and we can connect with Christ and commune with him. As Guy Waters puts it in his book, The Lord's Supper as a sign and meal of the New Covenant. The meaning of the supper is not the sum total of our unaided powers of reflection. In other words, not just a memorial service where we say, okay, I remember Jesus. No, we engage our minds so that in the supper we may commune with Jesus Christ by faith, the supper's most profoundly an ordinance of communion with the Savior. And so we've seen that the Lord's Supper allows us to commune with Christ in three directions, the past, the present, and the future. Two weeks ago, we communed with Christ by looking to the past because Jesus said, remember me. And we only barely began to feel the magnitude of the me that takes us to eternity past. Christ, before the world was created out of no thing, back that far and forward from there. Last week, We communed with Christ as the Lord's Supper brought us to the present. The bread and the cup, they are seals. They seal you and me in this moment. They make the promises of God certain to each one of us right now. My beloved is mine. I am my beloved's. Christ is mine forevermore. This week. We commune with Christ by looking to the future. As you heard in the reading of Scripture, at every gospel that records the Lord's Supper, including Mark, and I didn't read from Mark, Jesus uses this meal to point his disciples to the future. Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in, the, in my Father's kingdom. That's the future. When we eat and we drink, writes the Apostle Paul, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the return of Christ. That's the future. We heard as well that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was during the Passover meal that he was sharing with his disciples. Part of the richness of the Lord's Supper is found in the Passover and understanding what was going on there. So, very quickly, very quickly, I want to review the Passover meal. You know the story, just to remind you. God ordained the Passover meal just as he was about to deliver his people from the slavery of Egypt and establish them as a holy nation, his chosen people, his treasured possession. As part of that deliverance, God required that the people kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and on their lentils. And the Lord said, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, God was about to execute his judgment. But here's the thing. Sometimes, I think we believe that the Jewish people, because they were in slavery, because they were suffering, that somehow rendered them holy or sinless because of their slavery and because of their suffering. But not so. They were, as all of us here are, As we proclaim ourselves to be when we take our membership vows, sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope except in His sovereign mercy. God, in His sovereign mercy, did not give even the slaves what they deserved. Instead, a lamb died in their place, its blood placed over the doors of their home, they were protected, they were delivered from the judgment of God by the mercy of God. And after they had placed the blood on the door, they were to eat the Passover meal. And the Passover lamb was the centerpiece of the Passover meal. And God gave them very specific directions about how this meal was to be eaten because it was to be a yearly, year by year by year, Celebration, commemoration of how God had powerfully and miraculously delivered his people from bondage and set them free. The meal was ordered around four cups or sedered around, organized around four cups. Each cup representing a promise that God made to his people in Exodus 6. Are you with me? First cup was the cup of sanctification. They are set apart. God promised, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Cup two, the cup of deliverance. God promised, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Cup three, the cup of redemption. God promised, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Cup four, The cup of praise or presence or acceptance, it's called all of those. God promised, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. It's this cup, the fourth cup, that looked forward, people, in faith, to being in the forever presence of God in the kingdom of the Father. Now, let's come to the upper room. The Passover that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples the Lord's Supper. Jesus, there he is in the center. The one to whom the Apostle John had pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one of whom the Apostle Paul said, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. When Jesus picks up the third cup, The cup of redemption. It's that cup that he changes the words. And instead of saying the traditional Passover words, he says of the third cup, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And now, by the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed. Is that good news? And then Jesus does something else unusual. Jesus takes the Fourth cup, but he doesn't drink the fourth cup. He doesn't drink the cup of praise or acceptance or presence. Instead, he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, at the Last Supper, is taking his apostles to the future, to the time that God will fully consummate and perfect his kingdom the kingdom that he sent jesus to earth to inaugurate simply put the lord's supper takes us to the new heaven and the new earth at that time jesus will pick up the fourth cup and drink it with you and me And all those who have already been redeemed, and all those who are yet to be redeemed by the blood of the third cup, Jesus is waiting to drink the fourth cup with all of us. Every time, every time you take the Lord's Supper, it should be a reminder to you that Jesus has promised to take you home. You should hear Jesus saying, as he said in the upper room, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. A tiny taste of bread, a small sip of the cup, but a lavish feast is coming. Every time we come to the table of the Lord, we should fix our minds on our future hope, on that lavish feast that's to come. Why does Christ give us a future hope? He gives us a future hope because he knows we need a future hope. Don't reject it. Don't disparage it. You need it. I need it. Now, this might only resonate with me and with those who are older than I am, of which there are few here this morning. But well, maybe you've all heard it because I have heard it repeatedly throughout my life. Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that? And that's sort of posited as an axiom, a self-evident truth that all believers in Christ are so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Of course, we receive that as a disparaging Remark. And we attempt to prove it to be untrue because, of course, all of us want to be of some earthly good, do we not? Well, I'll show you. I just won't think of heaven anymore. But then I got to thinking in my 58 years, I don't think I've ever met anyone about whom that's really true. I've yet to meet someone who sequesters themselves in their home, practicing their harp, and thinking about heaven. In fact, here's what I've discovered most often, myself included. Believers don't think about the future hope enough. Too often, we live like the rest of the world, as if this is all there is. We busy ourselves trying to make earth heaven, trying to wring out of this earth joy and satisfaction and contentment that can only be found in heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodation here. Martin Luther said, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and all the riches of the world, even if those lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Look, these heavenly-minded men were of immense earthly good, were they not? And as a matter of fact, the most heavenly-minded people I've encountered, those who think about heaven the most, are the ones who are actually of most earthly good. They're the ones who are energized for ministry, energized for evangelism, un- encumbered by the need to attempt to make this world what it is not and what it will never be. The Lord gives us future hope because he knows we need future hope. And so you and I should embrace the future hope that Christ gives to us, particularly through this table. And such is God's desire that you and I and all of his people have this hope that he lures us. He lures us to this hope through what will engage not just some, but all of our senses. Something from which we are not detached, but which, with which we must be intimately connected. Food, eating, feasting, that's God's way. The Passover was a meal, as was the Feast of Weeks. The feast of unleavened bread, the feast of trumpets, the feast of booze, feast, 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 feast. Over and over, seven of them in all, ordained by God, to be celebrated every year. A tiny taste of the cup, a small, a tiny taste of the bread, a, a small sip of the cup, but the lavish feast is coming. And here's the thing: the people who had future hope before us, people who had future hope before us. We're not disappointed. God promised deliverance. So they hoped for deliverance, and God delivered them. God promised a land, so they hoped for a land, and God gave them a land. Before they were ever even exiled from the land that God gave them because of their own sinful rebellion, God promised restoration, so they hoped for restoration, and God restored them. God promised a Messiah, so they hoped for a Messiah, and God sent a Messiah. God has always given his people future hope, and God always gives what he promises. Do you believe that? God always gives what he promises. God has promised heaven, so we hope for heaven, and he'll give us heaven. Jesus promised a feast at his return, so we should hope for that feast because he will give us that feast. There's no reason for us to doubt the good Word of the Lord now. God's past faithfulness is always what gives us future hope. A tiny taste of the bread, a small sip of the cup, but the lavish feast is coming. It's certain. Yes, it requires faith. But you can present no evidence. You can present no evidence of God ever failing to do everything that he has promised to do. You can't hive off this promise as a maybe. No, it is a certainty. I don't know what awaits me between now and heaven. I don't know what awaits you between now and heaven. All I know is that while we wait, in the midst of the waiting, in the muck of the waiting, And I would think that we would all agree that it's a pretty mucky time in which we live. In the joys of the waiting, in the sorrow of the waiting, in the suffering of the waiting, in the humdrum of the waiting, we have this table right here. This future hope. As you read in your bulletin this morning, let your hope of heaven master your fear of death. Why should you be afraid to die who hope to live by dying? A tiny taste of the bread. A small sip of the cup, but a lavish feast is coming. One day this meal and the meagerness of it, it's going to be set aside for the feast that will come. This morning, I break the bread for you. Imagine. The day when Jesus breaks the bread and hands it to you. What's Jesus going to say when he takes the fourth cup and he raises it? The cup that he didn't drink because he's waiting for us. The cup of praise. The cup of acceptance. The cup of his presence. I don't know. Maybe he'll say, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the forever feast of the new heaven and the new earth. Can you imagine? I can't. But we should try, because it gives us hope. If Jesus deems it right and good and helpful for us in this world to look forward to the next, who are we to say otherwise? This table is just an hors d'oeuvre an appetizer, but it's enough to remind us that God always keeps His promises. He's promised heaven, so we should hope for heaven, and He'll give us heaven. Heaven is real. Heaven is good. Heaven is better than we can imagine in this moment. Christ would not have given His life and sacrifice for anything less. A tiny taste of the bread, a small sip of the cup, but a lavish feast is coming. Have hope.